Understanding grace can be difficult. It's freedom from the law and unconditional and so simple, yet misunderstood. Does this mean we can continue to sin? Does it mean behaving a certain way? Welcome to the last episode in this series, Grace Walk. I'm sure, like, uh, like many of you, this past week I was watching the news about the ongoing war in the Middle East between Israel and Hamas, and um, the report said that the war was likely to spread uh, with Hezbollah coming down from Lebanon in the north and other Palestinians coming in from the West Bank, and uh, they even made mention of hundreds of thousands of Muslims from other countries wanting to sign up in order to, once and for all, wipe Israel off the map. In the report I was watching, they showed a series of videos of pro-Palestinian, anti-Israel rallies. First of all, who started this? <laughs> right? But the rallies that they chose to show, which was probably most of them, were pro-Palestinian, anti-Israel. And they showed them taking place all over the Middle East. Then they showed the same types of rallies across the rest of Asia and Europe. They showed rallies in many African nations, rallies in South America. Where else? Here in the U.S. And as I watched that, I, I, I thought of this verse where the prophet Zechariah is writing, in the, about, he's writing about the end of days. He says this, it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured. And all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. You've heard me say, if you've been around here for a while, uh, but I'll say it again, there is no doubt in my mind that we are living in the last season, the last days. I do not know the day or the hour. And if somebody tells you they do, steer clear. I do not know the day or the hour, but I believe that the return of Christ is imminent or the rapture of the church. I believe the great tribulation is close, and because I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, the rapture is even closer. And it makes the season in which we live now to be a season of great urgency. Time is short. And so I tell myself, I tell you, preach the word. <laughs> preach the gospel. Live the gospel. Share the gospel. Let me ask you this question. Do you think there are people sitting in churches every week hearing the gospel and think they're good for the rapture? and yet will be left? I think about that all the time. So I ask you, do you know the work of grace in your life today? Do you know Jesus Christ in your life today? Because there's so many people that misunderstand grace. Uh, there's, there's nothing like it, and so misunderstanding it can be difficult. And we've been talking about it for six, now seven weeks. 
Let me ask you a few questions. Is grace complete and unconditional? Yes. Does it extend to cover every sin? It never runs out. So then doesn't it make sense that the more I sin, the more grace I will have? Uh, does preaching unconditional grace open the door to that kind of misunderstanding? I read a quote this week from British theologian Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says this, There is no better test as to whether a man is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this, that some people might misunderstand it and misinterpret it to mean that it really amounts to this, that because you are saved by grace alone, It does not matter at all what you do. You can go on sinning as much as you like because it will resound all the more to the glory of grace. He says, if my preaching and presentation of the gospel of salvation does not expose it to that misunderstanding, then it is not the gospel. The Apostle Paul realized this very, very much. He he knew that Teaching and preaching and writing about real, unconditional grace opens the door for this kind of misunderstanding. That's why he says this, Romans 6, 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace might increase, may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Later on in the chapter, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be said in the strongest of language. We're wrapping up this series on grace today, and um, I hope it's made you think, perhaps maybe even wrestle with some things. Throughout the series, you've heard me focus some attention on our freedom from the law as a believer in Christ. We are free from the law. Romans 6, 14, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Romans 8, 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. So if we are free from the rules and regulations of the law, are we just free to live however we want? (laughs) Every once in a while, someone will come up to me and ask me this. Okay, we're free from the law. So does that mean we're free from the Ten Commandments? Because the Ten Commandments is part of the law. We're free from the law, so we're free from the Ten Commandments, right? So let me get this straight. You have come to know Jesus. His grace has been brought into your life as his free gift to you because he died on the cross. He's forgiven all of your sin, gave you his resurrected life, filled you with his Holy Spirit, and what you want to do is you want to now be free to swear whenever you want, take the Lord's name in vain, lie about things, covet your neighbor's wife, steal things from the office, participate in idolatry, and dishonor your parents. That's what you want to do? Galatians 5.16. But I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. 
There's a promise. Verse 16 is a promise to us. When you walk in tandem, when you walk with the Holy Spirit, you will not do what? Carry out the desires of the flesh. First point, the Holy Spirit overwhelms the patterns of the flesh. You can't be walking in tandem with the Holy Spirit and sinning at the same time. What is the flesh? Well, the flesh is, is just the self apart from God. It is my independent self which thinks it has abilities apart from God. It's my efforts to get my needs met apart from God. It's me in charge. It's just self. And we all have a self. It is not the sinful nature. Because Scripture tells us something is gone. Romans 6, 6, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. The old is gone. We become new creations. The flesh is definitely not gone. <laughs> the problem with our flesh is that it knows the temporary satisfaction of sin because we were all sinners. Before we became a Christian, our sinful nature was teaching our flesh how to sin, and our flesh learned very well. Our flesh is corrupted by that knowledge of our former ways. It, it knows what it is like to try and meet our needs, independent of God. And although the controlling sinful nature is gone, there is this ongoing battle when it comes to the corrupted flesh we still have. We develop flesh patterns early in life that are completely governed by that sinful nature before we come to Christ. The old man. And these are habit patterns on how you act and how you feel and how you think. And they're repeated over and over and over in our life. They establish these deep sinful ruts in our lives. A couple of examples. Uh, one could be a, a child who's neglected or abused. And the enemy is telling that child over and over and over, the reason you're abused or neglected is because you're worthless. And the sinful nature is agreeing with the deceiver, teaching the flesh that that is the truth. And so they establish this thinking flesh pattern that I am worthless. And as they mature and grow up, they, uh, they, they seek to prove they're worthless through destructive behavior. Another example is, a is the child who is spoiled rotten. Ever known one? Th these are the kids that grow up thinking they should always eat with a silver spoon, right? Well, they have their own flesh patterns. They develop the flesh pattern of pride and arrogance and entitlement. So what I offer to you today is the only way to overcome your flesh patterns is yielding to the power of God's Holy Spirit within you. You don't have what it takes on your own. Self, flesh, will never succeed in being righteous. Therefore, you need the Holy Spirit yielded to him that he may live his life in you. Verse 18 says that once you are being led by the Spirit, you are no longer under the law. We know from Romans 7, 12, the law is good, it's holy, it's righteous. The law is not bad. 
But we also know from 1 Timothy 1.8 that the law was not made for righteous people. It is for those who don't have this internal Holy Spirit guiding, leading. Walking in the Holy Spirit makes the law unnecessary. Of course, the Holy Spirit living in me, of course I'm not going to go to the office and steal from the office, right? I got no buy-in there, right? Because I have the Holy Spirit living in me, I'm not going to cheat on a test, right? Because I have the Holy Spirit, I am not going to have sex outside of a heterosexual marriage, Why would I do something so blatantly against the presence of God that lives in me? And when I do fall and I sin, it breaks my heart because I know I've fallen into old strongholds or old sin patterns. And I don't need to read on a paper that what I've done is bad. I know it is because God lives in me. Now, this needs to be said, so here goes. It's my way of preparing, okay? Maybe you're a person who consistently sins because, well, quite frankly, everybody's doing it. It's just the way life is now. Let's say you participate in sexual relations of any kind with someone who is not your husband or wife and are completely fine with that and have no conviction in your soul that what you're doing is sinful. Everybody's doing it. Even God says it's simple, but everybody's doing it. You have no qualms about it. There's only one answer. The Holy Spirit doesn't live in you. Can't. Those two things are incompatible. You're not a believer. You're going to be left at the rapture. You're someone who takes the Lord's name in vain all the time and feel fine with it and have no plans to stop. Even if you read something in God's Word, even though you know God doesn't like it, you're just very happy with it. You want to continue on doing it. There's only one answer. The Holy Spirit is not in you. Those two things are incompatible. You're not a believer. Grace changes people. He forgives you and he changes you. I think the most dangerous place to be spiritually is a person who thinks they're a Christian and they're not. They don't see any need for change because they they feel that they're good. I'm, I'm, I'm going to church, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, and uh, if anybody asks me, oh yeah, I believe Jesus came, and he died on the cross, and he rose from the dead, I believe that, so, and I go to church, and so, maybe even participate in a ministry or two, I'm good, right? And they don't see any need for change. They see grace sometimes even as license. He's forgiven everything. I 
feel relaxed now in my sin. See, there's a very interesting passage in 1 Corinthians 9. Paul is talking about his ministry to both Jews and Gentiles. And uh, understanding in that day, Jews were, the, they were known as the people of the law. Gentiles, people without the law. And uh, Jews were keeping everybody uh, held to that, uh, the, the, the law and its, its structure. And Gentiles, on the other hand, were just off in all kinds of sinful ways. In fact, many times Paul refers to Gentiles as representative of pagan sinners. And Paul, he's, he's not satisfied with just reaching Jews or just reaching Gentiles. I want to reach everybody. And so he writes this. It's very interesting because there's one thing I want to draw from it. 1 Corinthians 9.20. To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews to those who under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. In other words, when he went into a Jewish family, he didn't say, well, I'm not under the law, so I don't have to do anything that you're doing. You go ahead and keep the law, but I'm going to be at odds with you. No, he says, I'm going to put myself with you where you are, that I may connect with you, that I may share the gospel with you. Even though he knows he's not under the Jewish law. And then he goes to the Gentiles, 21, to those who are without law, this is representative of Gentiles, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. I'm not going to go to a Jewish home and impose the Jewish law upon them. They're without the law. So my question is, is Paul under law? I got half the yes, a half no's. He says it in the passage. Yes, I am. The question is, which law? <laughs> which law? He says he is under the law of Christ. He makes the point again that he is not under a list of external rules. He doesn't need that anymore because the law of Christ is written in his heart through the abiding presence of God himself through his Holy Spirit. The law of Christ is not about rules to keep, but a relationship to grow. Another way of thinking about it is Jesus has not come to take part in your life. He's come to take over your life. Now, if you want to keep Jesus at a nice distance, you want to keep him in his closet, you want to keep him in his room, and you have this, and he has this, and every once in a while you come and you face him and you talk about things, but um, you don't really want him taken over. Back to Galatians 5. Paul wants to be very clear about this. Jesus changes people. When Jesus brings his life into your life, he changes you. He makes you a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And yes, because of the governance of his Holy Spirit, you will act different. And he wants to be very clear about this, so he goes ahead and explains what these two different ways are. And he gives us a list of things. This is how the flesh acts, and this is how the Spirit acts. Verse 19, now these 
Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and then he can't think of any more, but he just says, and things like these. (laughs) Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you. In other words, I'm doing it again, but I've already done it. That those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if this is your practice, it should wake you up. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you practice any of these, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the word practice means to repeat over and over and have no problem repeating over and over and over. It'd be like this. Hey, I just get mad. I was just born with a quick temper. My dad had a quick temper. I come by it naturally. Hey, sure I'm immoral. I don't know. I was just born with a strong sex drive. God understands. Oh, I know I can be very contentious and divisive, even a troublemaker, a bully sometimes. Oh, but I was born with a strong personality. You know, it's become very popular today to say, I was born this way, so I can't help it. This, this perceived sin that you think I have, I was just born this way. I want to say we were all born with sin. And we don't just say, well, that excuses it, because there is an answer. There is a freedom. There is a forgiveness. There is a new life available. His name is Jesus Christ. If your sin doesn't bother you at all, if it doesn't bother you at all, I'd come to Jesus right now. It's totally different for the spirit-filled believer who deals with flesh patterns of the past. They hate their sin. And they know that only Jesus through his Holy Spirit brings victory and only through God's Spirit can I live this way Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Of course there's no law. Who needs a law to tell the patient person you ought to be patient? So the question is not how well are you behaving, but under whom do you live? The flesh or the spirit? And he sums it up in verse 25. If we live by the spirit, let us also walk by the spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us, through us, as us. To bear fruit. I love the word for walk in that verse. Walking in the Spirit. The the word walk uh, actually means to march. Kind of like in a brigade or a marching band in a parade. Everybody doing the exact same thing. I was in marching band in high school. Played the trombone. 
Who knew, right? Do not ask me to play today. It's been a few years since I was in high school. But in the, in, the, in the marching band, we worked hard at learning how to step exactly the right length. Our marching band was an 8 to 5 marching band. Anybody know what 8 to 5 means? Yeah. No. 8 to 5 means you learn how to take 8 steps for every 5 yards of a football field. Some bands, they were 6 to 5s, and we didn't like 6 to 5s. We were 8 to 5s, Okay. And we worked hard at developing just the right stride in order to end up eight steps every five yards. We worked hard at getting our knees up to the exact same height as everyone else. Imagine, uh, imagine one being a little off or deciding, hey, I want to express my step my own way. I don't want to be under the control of the director. I want to be in control of my step. Well... That actually happened to me my freshman year. Our band was actually invited to march at the Denver Broncos game. I hate to bring them up this season, but there it is, okay? <laughs> and at the, at the end of our performance, the whole band ended up in the end zone, and the last thing we did was called a snap bow. We would cut off the last note, and we would snap the whole band down to a bowing position. It was really cool. Except for this freshman trombone player who forgot to snap the chin strap on his hat. So on the snap bow, and yes, on national TV, because that's when they showed the bands back then, there was this hat that came off flying through the ranks. I was out of step. See, to be in step with the Holy Spirit means you are with Him. It is not your agenda. It is His. He designs the routine, the steps, the whole plan of your life. If you get out of step, he has one goal, and what is it? To get you back in step. He uses things like pain or failure or pressure or stress. Isn't that great? God does not act like we expect him to. In fact, he may be totally different than you ever thought that he was. There are some people who think God is this stern taskmaster and he's watching and judging every single action that we make, ready to pounce. He is not like that. We ought not be either, by the way. Some people think that because of grace, he doesn't care what they do. God is not like that. God sent Jesus to pay the price for our sins so that we could receive his life. So that we know that we belong. We're loved. We're adopted and chosen and redeemed and clean and righteous and holy. We're safe in him. 
We're empowered by his spirit. God takes such delight in his kids. This verse from Zephaniah sums up what God is like when it comes to his children. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. It is God who is the warrior, and he always wins. He fights on your behalf. The battle does not belong to you. It belongs to him. He will exult. He takes great delight over you with joy. The word joy, mirth, and merriment, it actually means a party. He will quiet. He will be quiet in his love. And the phrase actually means he will bring quietness, settledness, to us because he loves us. When you know the love of God, you know the love of God. It has, it has this ability to quiet the soul. He goes on and he says, he will rejoice over you. Strong's concordance says the word rejoice here means to spin around under the influence of great emotion. Do you believe that God is spinning around with great emotion because he loves you so much? And because you belong to him. And then it ends with, with shouts of joy. So he's spinning around with this great emotion. And the word for shouts of joy means a shrill cry of triumph. There's this exuberance joy that he has children. That he loves. That he lives with. C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, when God comes in, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. Oh, you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not that surprised at what God is doing. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. And to you, it makes no sense. What on earth is God up to? You ever thought that, by the way? He goes on, the explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here and putting up an extra floor there and running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace because he intends to come and live there himself. God may be totally different than you ever imagined him to be. <laughs> One, two, three, four. We do hope that you've enjoyed this episode today. If you'd like to learn more about Grace Bible Church in Georgetown, Texas, please visit us at gbcgt.org. Many blessings from our church family to yours.